So there's these various attitudes that we seek to cultivate that have to do with kindness and gentleness and a curiosity to being present, you know, and just letting go. You know, in fact, even when we even when we notice we're not present, that is an act of mindfulness. Welcome to the Wisdom of Compassion, a podcast presented by White Conch Dharma Center. Our guests share their successes and struggles as we aim to deepen our confidence in the value of compassion. I'm Nawang Zopa, and joining me today is White Conch teacher in training, Nakmo Chini. Lama Chini is an ordained in the Nakpong tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and is a social work professor at the University of Wisconsin. She is a nationally recognized gerontology researcher, scholar, and educator, and as a fellow of the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society, she developed curriculum highlighting the importance of mindfulness for compassionate and ethically based social action, therapeutic intervention, and professional self-care. Chini has been a student of Domo Geshe Rinpoche, the spiritual director of White Conch, since 2003 and is the Midwest facilitator for Rinpoche's Conscious End-of-Life Training Program with Grand Transitions Institute and Hospice. Chini, I'm so pleased you could be here today. Thank you, it's my pleasure. So you've been involved in teaching at the university level in some capacity since the early 90s and have been studying meditation even longer than that. I understand you incorporate a mindfulness meditation into your classes. What does mindfulness practice entail and what feedback have you had from your students? How has it impacted their learning experience? I um, became aware of the importance of mindfulness many years ago just in my own personal life. And so I proposed to develop curriculum for social workers to learn about mindfulness and how it might help us in our own awareness of self, um, how it can help with self-care, and also how it can help social workers to engage more skillfully in social justice and advocacy efforts. Then I began um, actually integrating a brief mindfulness exercise in uh, my social work practice courses. And I began with just a three-minute exercise at the beginning of class. Over time, I have um, learned from students that they, they found it very helpful. It helped them kind of arrive, you know, because they're running around busy from one thing to another. And there were days I, I might forget to do it. And they'd be like, hey, you forgot, you forgot to do that mindfulness <laughs> thing. <laughs> and then over time, I started actually integrating it into all of my classes, including my PhD seminar on research methods and field seminar. And, you know, my students have gone on to a number of them to integrate it into their professional life where they might do mindfulness um, exercises with older adults in nursing homes, as an example. So when you do these exercises at the beginning of your classes, does it also help you prepare for teaching the class? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's two, two major benefits that I see like right at the beginning of class there. It does help me to arrive so that I can be more skillful in teaching because after all, we can't actually accomplish a whole lot if we're not present for it. And the second benefit that I notice is that it creates almost a sense of intimacy and a connection between the students and, and myself. You know, when you're sitting silently, 
you know, even just observing the breath. There's an intimacy that happens between people in the room. And it, it fosters a sense of connectedness, which also helps in teaching because then students feel more comfortable with me. I feel more connected to them. And it's really beautiful for that. So you're also a big proponent of the importance of mindfulness in the field for social workers and not just in the classroom. And before we go too much further, I'd like us to establish a common understanding of the concept of mindfulness. How would you define mindfulness? Well, there's a wonderful definition by Jan Kabat-Zinn, um, and he says that mindfulness is bringing awareness to the present moment and non-judgmentally. You know, it sounds very simple to, you know, say, well, just be present, but when we pay attention to how often we're actually present in the moment, <laughs> um, it, it's not very common, actually, and it's yeah. not so easy to do. But it really is just arriving in the present moment and bringing your attention and awareness to to the present and non-judgmentally. And that's the really hard thing because most people, when when we when we begin to practice mindfulness, um, it's not uncommon for us to be very very critical of ourselves and to say oh gosh, I can't do this. My mind's all over the place, (laughs) you know? And so uh, an important part of mindfulness is bringing a gentleness and a kindness to our practice, you know, and just letting go. (laughs) You know, in fact, even when we, even when we notice we're not present, that is an act of mindfulness. It seems like there's two aspects of mindfulness here. There's actively practicing mindfulness. And then it seems like there's a point where you're actually alive in mindfulness, alive in the present moment, almost vividly. It seems to me that that experience would be really transformative. How has your personal practice of being in that present moment made an impact on the way you are alive? Well, um, my teacher has, Jomo Geshe Rinpoche, she has said that we actually can only be alive in the present moment. I've thought about that a lot and contemplated that. The interesting thing is that when we're alive, we feel so much more joy. You know, otherwise we're just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, there is an element of this incredible aliveness and a, a, a joy and an experience of wholeness that we can experience and a comfort, a feeling of safety when we're really just really present non-judgmentally with what is right here, right now. I had a really interesting experience one day I was... I had just given a a talk to a large group of social work professionals in the community on mindfulness and the value of it. (laughs) And as I was walking to my car afterwards, I was walking very mindfully and I looked up at the sky. It was this beautiful blue sky and the, the clouds were this vivid white against the blue and the colors in the leaves were so beautiful. And this breeze came and brushed my cheek and I was so fully present in that moment and this breeze touching my cheek, it felt like bliss. I kind of come back to that when I think about that aliveness and what, you know, how wonderful yeah. it is to be there for life. So in the context of someone who is maybe caring for someone at end of life or in another social work profession, I can see how being more present and more aware would also help the caregiver act with more clarity and might facilitate a more professional approach to the fieldwork. 
But what I'm interested in most is how someone who is alive in this vibrant way has an impact on the people he or she works with simply by being in their presence. I imagine there's not many studies on this dynamic, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, so there actually is a a body of literature that looks at the benefits of a mindfulness practice for relationships and therapeutic relationships. So therapists who practice mindfulness and how they're being present, how it affects the well-being of the people that they serve. And I know just experientially, mm-hmm. when I'm with when I'm with someone and I'm struggling with something and they're fully present with me, it puts me at ease. When someone I'm working with is really anxious, let's say, and I'm there to serve them and they're really anxious, if I can just be very present and be non-judgmental in that moment in each of those moments with them, It can have a calming effect. As a social worker over the years, I've worked with a lot of older adults uh, who have dementia. What I've observed is that caregivers who are very anxious tend to stimulate anxiety in the patient. When caregivers learn mindfulness practices and learn that actually it's okay, there's nothing they need to do, there's nothing they need to fix, they can just be present, they actually cultivate this more joyful approach to interacting with the care receiver. I I gave a a talk to a group of caregivers and persons with dementia. These were people with early onset dementia. And I was talking with them about mindfulness and the benefits of mindfulness and how to practice. And this man came up to me afterwards. So he had early onset dementia. And he looked at me and he pointed and he said, this is going to be really good for me. (laughs) You know, so he could, you know, when you think about it, you know, for people with dementia and or people who are, you know, bedridden, who are who are at the end of life, their whole job is to be with what is. They're, they're you know, there's nothing for them to do. They, they're, their job is to be, to be. Yeah. And we're so used to doing, doing. And for many people, there's nothing they can do, but they can be and they can be in the present moment. The University of Wisconsin uh, School of Social Work put up a video of one of these presentations that you're probably referring to um, on professional self-awareness and self-care. And in the presentation, you gave an example of what being present looks like by talking about a young child who's engrossed in maybe smelling a flower or or in frivolous play or, or whatever. Is that the dynamic that I guess you're looking for or you're encouraging when you talk about mindfulness in social work? Does that sort of return to an innocent presence does that have a place in the field or is there another type of being present to which you're referring well that absolutely has has a place in it um and the thing i love about that metaphor of you know seeing that child that young child with their eyes wide and bright looking at their environment even their fingers and their hand when they're really young and they're looking at their hand with wonder (laughs) you know we know that for professionals who become very rote in how they engage in their activities, that they're much more likely to be prone to clinical errors. And many people in hospitals die every year because of clinical errors from drug problems or you know prescription problems or mistakes made by care providers who 
aren't really seeing the situation freshly and as it is. They're um, getting into really rote responding. So approaching every encounter with fresh, open eyes, not expecting those people in front of you to be exactly like all the other families you've worked with, but um, having that wonder and that curiosity causes us to ask more, ask the right questions, to be more in touch with what's going on in that family or with that individual, to have joy in our work, that curiosity that keeps us inspired and yeah. learning. So yeah, it does have a place, but there's many, many elements to mindfulness that you can practice and many different qualities that you can cultivate sure. in addition to that curiosity and that openness. Yeah, I like I like that idea of having a fresh view because I imagine when you're dealing with those types of stressful and intense situations sometimes that that would be helpful for both yourself and for the people you're working with. Well, yeah, and if you think about it, like how delightful is it to be with that child that's in that curious and open state? <laughs> yeah. It's enjoyable, right? It so is, from, absolutely. The, from that side too. So Part of the goal of this podcast is to provide a platform for the exploration of compassion. And as I mentioned in your introduction, you worked to develop curriculum that connects the practice of mindfulness with compassionate and ethically based social action. And I'm wondering, how does the mental state of being mindful help generate compassion? Where is the connection between the two? You know, one way of interpreting mindfulness, the literal translation, I think using Chinese characters is presence of heart. So when we think of compassion, we often think of the heart, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about mindfulness, we, you know, we talk about being present, being non-judgmental, uh, being aware. And that often in mindfulness practices, we often teach a practice called loving kindness, the loving kindness practice is traditionally taught in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, cultivates a tenderness, and it also helps to cultivate equanimity. And equanimity, it's really beginning to look at others with a balanced, steady state of mind and with tenderness. And the loving kindness practice, we um, cultivate kindness and wishing well-being to ourselves. But then we also extend that to others that we love, to strangers, and even to people we have difficulty with. And the more we practice this beautiful loving kindness practice, you know, our heart becomes warmer and gentler and more tender. So you mentioned the non-judgmental aspects of mindfulness, and it just occurred to me that a lot of the attitudes or actions that we might consider less than compassionate might actually be coming out of some of the discursive thoughts and attitudes that mindfulness practice acts as a remedy for. So I, I can kind of see a little bit of that there as well. Time for a quick update from White Conj Dharma Center. Don't forget to register for winter retreat. Our spots are filling up quickly. First session will be on developing spiritual courage and begins on December 27th, running through January 3rd. The second session will focus on the practice of 21 Taras, a wonderful meditation practice, and begins on January 4th and runs through the 11th. So go ahead and register for those. Also, make sure to look out for our new online programming beginning in early 2016 on our website white-conch.org. More on that to come soon. 
So Lama Chini, your research agenda is centered on improving care at end of life, and you've done an incredible amount of work in this field. I imagine you've come across a wide variety of training courses and seminars related to end of life care. Currently, you're a facilitator for the Conscious End of Life Training Program founded by Domo Geshe Rinpoche. Can you tell me a little bit about this program and how it differs from other programs you might have come across? Uh, the training consists of a series of modules in which uh, Domo Geshe Rinpoche has uh, videotaped teachings that help students understand some fundamental challenges that caregivers often face in providing care at end of life. What's really unique about this training program is that over time, this program helps participants to literally transform their mind, to change their inner qualities that then allow them to be the, become the one that's capable of sitting at the bedside. For those who do this work and who take it very seriously, Rinpoche has said they literally can become a blessing to this world. Mm. It involves opportunities for us to look at our own mind and how we're responding to others in relationship with others and or in various care situations we're involved in. And how do we eliminate some of the difficult qualities that we might possess that would prevent us from being really skillful. And particularly in the early parts of this module, a profound aspect that we work at is how to identify the harm that's caused by impatience in our own mind and how we can work to eliminate impatience. And that's essential for being able to sit with people at end of life. And the way that it differs from other training programs that I've been involved in, particularly the professional training programs, many of them, you know, you, you go and you participate in modules where you are introduced to content about, you know, how to address cultural issues at end of life and what are the strategies for alleviating uh, physical pain, what do we know about how to work skillfully with family caregivers and all of that. Mm -hmm. This training program helps us to become alive in what we bring to any of those kinds of activities. And so it's really unique in that way because you can be very skillful at delivering technique, but if you energetically are not uh, present and courteous in how you do that, you actually can cause harm. You mentioned that this program is geared toward helping people become the one who's capable of providing end-of-life care. And in some of the things you've mentioned, you're alluding to it a little bit, but who is the one that's actually capable? What's the ideal caregiver in the context of this program? When we become capable of not harming others, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. when we've accomplished something, right? Yeah. And, and that's only possible when we uh, root out some of the dysfunctions in our tendencies in how we think about things and how we respond to things. So empathy and compassion are concepts that are very closely related and they're often used almost interchangeably. We might say that empathy is an element of compassion. These are also hugely important concepts in social work professions, particularly end-of-life care. Um, we need 
look no further than the definition of compassion fatigue to see how closely your field relates the two. Compassion fatigue is the reduced capacity or interest in being empathic or bearing the suffering of clients. As a practicing Mahayana Buddhist, do you see the role of empathy differently than others in your field? Does the idea of compassionate care take precedence over the idea of empathic care, or is there even a distinction there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I've thought about this a lot uh, because in the profession of social work, foundational skills that are taught to professionals have to do with empathy. Um, empathy is really the capacity to understand and feel what another is experiencing and really from their frame of reference. The challenge is often that we we don't really know from their frame of reference and often, right. you know, we're experiencing it from our side. You know, I've known many many practitioners who are very, very empathic. And what can happen is that you can feel or um, imagine what someone else is feeling, but actually become immobilized by that because we can easily get really overwhelmed by the suffering of others. I tell my students, you know, it's like there's this huge pit of despair and we have our clients experiencing this tremendous despair and sometimes we jump right down into the pit with them. Yeah. And that's one of the dangers of empathy. But I think I think empathy is really can be really important, you know, for someone in early stages of development. If you know, when we only think of ourselves and we never think of others, when we begin to develop empathy, we are beginning to be thinking and feeling what others might be feeling. But what we want to do is move beyond that because, you know, in genuine compassion, Rinpoche has said genuine compassion lies beyond empathy, uh, which can result in debilitating sadness or confusion. So compassion in my mind is so important. It's really not just, um, feeling the suffering of others, but wanting to alleviate that suffering. So perhaps I was making an assumption in that empathy would take precedence in the field of social work, but it seems to me that that might not be the case, since I imagine the reason people get into the field in the first place is that they do have that compassionate desire to alleviate the suffering of others. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in social work, I often tell students I'm you know, that social work is really a noble profession because, you know, in a society that values money and prestige and power, many social workers who know that they're not going to make a lot of money in this profession <laughs> uh, come because, uh, one, maybe they've had a lot of suffering in their own families or in their own life, and they want to help others who've had similar circumstances or yeah. somehow they've been moved and want to make the world a better place. Sure, sure. Jenny, are you able to incorporate the practice of loving kindness into your university classes? I certainly have. Uh -huh. I have taught loving kindness. And, you know, I think for any instructor, being able to articulate the reason, the rationale. And so I talk with students about how... Uh, important it is to cultivate compassion. Well, Lama Chini, thank you for sharing with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Lama Chini, you can check out some of her talks at white-conch.org slash wcteachers or on the Joyful Path Meditation and Healing Center YouTube channel 
at youtube.com slash joyfulpathmeditation. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on whatever platform you're listening. You can stay up to date on White Conch news and events at white-conch.org slash updates and can find all our social media links, blog posts, and these podcast episodes at white-conch.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the next episode as we continue our exploration of compassion.